talked about putting Christ first in our own hearts. So it will play out in the most challenging place, and that's in the home. Welcome to the second part of Putting Christ First. Truly putting Christ first in our lives is shown in several ways. In this program, Dr. Cece teaches us from Colossians how we are to put Christ first in our homes, in our jobs, in our worship, in our conduct toward unbelievers, and in our speech. The concluding challenge is to put Christ first in everything. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Here at the conclusion of Putting Christ First is Pastor Cece. But Paul's not done. He moves on to verses 18 to 21 of the importance of putting Christ first in our homes. Read with me verses 18 to 21, everybody. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Oh, he's talked about putting Christ first in our own hearts, our own lives. Why? So it will play out in the most challenging place, and that's in the home. And you know as well as I that the home is the crucible for our faith, the testing ground for our discipleship. It's where we live out what we truly believe. Behind the closed doors of our lives that gives the best evidence of the depth of our submission to and our love and obedience toward the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If the truth be known. And the Apostle Paul knows this and that's why he directs his attention first to the wives in verse 18 regarding wives putting Christ first in their homes. And once again, ladies, I'll be reminding you unashamedly about the value of submitting to your husband's undeserved but God-given authority. Why? Because it is fitting, it is proper, and because he is the head. And that's what he expects. But I'll also be talking in verse 19 about husbands putting Christ first in their homes. Gentlemen, I'll be talking to you heart to heart, head to head, and if I have to, toe to toe. As we talk about the value of being effective spiritual leaders in our homes, first by daily responding to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because that's what enables us to continually and self-sacrificially love our wives and not be embittered against them or harsh with them, which you know as well as I is a major problem in the family today. But then we'll move on to the children in verse 20. And he will remind us that just as the preeminent Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ submitted to his earthly parents, 
as he submitted to his heavenly Father, so Paul will call you children to listen and obey your earthly parents. Why? Because to not do so displeases the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to have first place even in your life. And parents, let me just say this to you in advance is that Paul will remind us, not only here, but throughout Scripture, that children who are not trained to obey their parents, their earthly parents, will have a hard time in life following the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But Paul won't be done. He'll then address fathers. And what it means to put put Christ first in their lives as well in verse 21 and reminding us that just as Christ, the head of the church, doesn't exasperate, doesn't provoke, doesn't stir us up with criticism or unreasonable demands, who doesn't cause us to be discouraged and lose hearts, so we fathers need to learn how to disciple our children, and I cannot tell you how many people I have counseled, even yesterday at my class reunion, that are still searching for daddy's approval when dad's been dead or gone for 20 or 30 years. I cannot tell you how much counseling is done because of the fatherless, even with those fathers that are alive and in the home, and how many children still feel fatherless. And we will address that too. Paul's going to talk about the family in order. The family in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. All of us need to be here for that. But he's not finished. After dealing with our lives and dealing with the family, Paul will then talk about putting Christ first in our jobs. How many of you have jobs? Will you raise your hands? You know, Jehovah Jireh provided that for you. That's what his name means, the Lord who provides. In Deuteronomy 8, that he gave you the power to make wealth. And listen to his words directed right to those in the workplace because that's also where the Lordship of Jesus Christ is an issue. Listen to chapter 3, verse 22, all the way to chapter 4, verse 1. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now obviously he's addressing the issue of the first century where one-third of the Roman Empire were slaves. But the principles are still directive. They speak to working relationships today. And they have valuable wisdom for us. When we get to this section, we're going to begin with Paul's instruction regarding employees putting Christ first in the workplace. Verse 22 to 25 of chapter 3. We're going to talk directly about the problem of so many so-called Christians whose work practices are a shame to the name of Christ if the truth be known. And how God expects sincere obedience from workers. Why? Because He's the Lord God. 
And that we're to do our work not with external service as pleasing men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing God. And that God expects hard work, not just for a paycheck, but that our work is to be done for the Lord rather than for men, because it is the Lord who rewards, the Lord we serve, and the Lord who judges. And then you move on. And you'll address the relationship of employers to employees and how important it is for employers to put Christ first. Because God also expects employers to engage in what He engages in, and that's justice and fairness. And He will address, as will many scriptures, the importance of not abusing those who work for you and not muzzling the ox and caring for those who work for you. Why? Because Christ is Lord. He's the preeminent master in heaven. And Paul will move on from talking about the lordship of Christ in our lives, our families, and our jobs. And I'll even talk in chapter two or chapter four, verse two to four, about putting Christ first in our worship. I cannot tell you how many people in recent days have been saying, I feel a little anemic in my worship. Well, Colossians chapter four is just what the doctor ordered. Listen to Paul's words. In fact, read them with me. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. By the way, the way Paul addresses this in the Greek text, he's not just talking about prayer. The priority of the text is devotion. And he's going to address the importance of a devotional heart. Not devotions as read 15 minutes every morning. Not, not devotions as lifting your hands and when you praise. Not devotion as somehow, you know, picking your style of music and filling your heart with that. True worship that comes from the heart, that has nothing to do with whether a drum is played or not played, or your style of music is engaged in or not engaged in, or how soft or how loud you want the music, but a devotional heart, a heart of worship, that from that flows engaging prayer. And the Greek words that he uses there we won't get to now are so profound, they're so deep of what he really means by this that your life is going to be impacted forever if you'll just listen and apply. And his point is going to be driven home that only to the degree that Christ has first place in our lives will we ever effectively pray and truly worship. And it's not about externals. But then, from this discussion, Paul's going to take us on to putting Christ first in our conduct toward unbelievers in chapter 4, verse 5. And you know that that's a major concern for me because my passion, my heart, is that we would be a global church that would have substantial global ministries and effective local ministries. Because the need is great locally and globally. That's why Paul will say in chapter 4, verse 5, you know, in that day, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. 
But the theme, the thesis, and the foundation of that is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We don't go across the waters or around the corner to make more Christians. We don't go around the world or across town to just build local churches. We go to see people worship the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what sends us. That's what motivates us. That's what impassions us until we die. Paul will remind us of that. We're going to talk a lot about the difference between methodology and message. Because evolving methodologies are before us. That the message must stay the same. We have opportunities that are being laid before us that are astounding. Astounding. But we will not move one foot. We will not spend one dollar until we're certain that we're doing this under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But then he'll wrap it up. Of all of these arenas in which we can put Christ first, he ends the section with putting Christ first in our speech. How many of you would admit today that you have a problem taming the tongue? This little two-ounce slab of mucous membrane hidden behind rows of ivory teeth can destroy a nation. Can ruin a person for life. It was amazing to me as I was talking to people yesterday, they could still remember what their high school English teacher said to them. Or what that coach said to them. Or what their friends said to them. A girl came up to me and apologized for what she said to me 40 years ago. I didn't even remember her. Taming the tongue. If you're an average person, you have about 700 occasions every day to speak. About 12,000 sentences, 100,000 words a day. Oh, no wonder James would say, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle a whole body as well. James 4.2. And Paul will wrap up this section saying, listen, let me get down to your heart, to where you really live. The importance of taming our tongues in submission to the Lordship of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 6, let your speech always be with grace. As though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Why? Because all of us know that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs chapter 18. You know it and I know it. That words can hurt and words can heal. And every day we need to ask, what did ours do today? And we're going to learn how our speech can be sweetened with grace. That it can be overflowing with the abundance of God's grace as an undeserved gift toward others. We're going to learn how speech can be seasoned with salt. This serves as a preservative against those who would oppose God's righteousness and a healing message for those, a medicine for those who have been wounded. That's Paul's point. I want to have you submit every area of your life. 
to the Lordship of Christ. Not just in words, but in actions. Every thought, every word, every slip of the tongue. That's our flyover. Oh, don't lose the forest because we're studying trees and tree limbs and leaves. And learn this process of putting Jesus first. First in my life, first in my home, first in my job, first in my worship, first in my conduct toward unbelievers, and first in my speech. A couple of weeks ago, Tim Wagenleitner invited me to come and to watch uh, the harvest of the Thompson seedless grapes that will eventually become the raisins that we eat. And I got to ride in a giant harvester. That was so cool. I want one. Wouldn't that be great if I could just drive one up, paint it red with flames on the side, and come in and shake up this congregation that is it? Because that's what it does. It shakes the vines. It separates grapes from branches and leaves and deposits them in a hopper and then spreads them out row by row to be dried in the sun. See, that's exactly what we are doing here. To, to take this view from above and watch the grapes being harvested off the vines. And, and when I was sitting there with Tim, and he was so precise that it was just amazing, and I asked him, of course, a thousand questions, which I do, because I love learning stuff. And it was just neat. I'd never done this before, and this city boy was just in, you know, grape heaven. I was going to say pig heaven, but I guess it's not the same. Well, I'll tell you something. While I was sitting there, I was thinking about all the passages of Scripture about the vine dresser, the vineyard owner, God himself, who expects us to bear fruit. And of course, my mind would go back to Colossians 1.10. Remember? Where it talks about bearing fruit in every good work. It would go back to what we studied in chapter 2, verse 7, about being firmly rooted and overflowing with the abundant fruit of gratitude. Uh, how many passages from John 15 and other places where we talked about being fruitful, and how many times have we recited the fruit of the Spirit from love to self-control? Fruit! But it's going to make a requirement on me that I shake you up. Well, you're dry on the vine. That's what the Spirit of God wants to do. To shake us up. And if you think chapter 1 and 2 were difficult because we engaged in all kinds of theological banter and disagreement, oh, now in chapter 3 and 4, we won't banter over disagreement. We will wrestle with application. And you won't be arguing with me. You'd be arguing with yourself. Am I going to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ or am I not? So you need to be prepared for the harvest. You know, Tim didn't just guess at what day to harvest. It was so precise. I got a text from Darlene that said, you know what, it's time, it's harvest time, pick a day. It'll be over this day, it starts this day. Well, I'm telling you, starting next week, we're going to start the harvest.
You're on warning. And you got to be ready. And you need to pray for an openness to the Word of God. And, and, and if you're here for somebody else, you know, you drug your husband to church, then let him stay home. He doesn't want to be here. Oh, I'm just kidding. You got to be here for yourself. Kids, you got to be here for yourselves. Husbands, you got to be here for you. Wives, you got to be here for you. Parents, you got to be here for you. Disciples of Jesus, you got to be here for you. I want to engage Colossians 3 and 4 for me. I promise you, I expect to be shaken up as well. Because I want to bear better fruit. So I'm going to ask you to read the passage over and over and over. Maybe even 40 times. And at least start with Colossians 3, 1 to 17 as we move into that in these coming weeks. And I'm going to ask you to do something. It's to be here. Now those of you that know me know that's not usually what I say. I don't mind if you take a break. I don't mind if you go on vacation. I have no problem with that. But I want you to be here as much as you can be here. And stop making excuses. And if you can't be here, then listen online. But there's not a golf game or a football game, a baseball game or anything else that's worth what you need to engage in right now for you and for the generations that follow you. And then I'm going to ask you to invite others. I'm not trying to pull people from other churches. But I'm going to ask you to invite some friends. And whether you're going to listen online, you're going to be involved with a growth group with them or a small group with them or some other way, but my goal is simple. That should a history book be written regarding your life and mine, that the subtitle wouldn't be that you became rich and famous or powerful or influential, but that your life would be entitled putting Christ first in everything. I want that for me. I want that for you. And regardless of what your 60th high school reunion folks will say if they're still around, I want that said by the Lord Jesus Christ. I want that. Not just for me. I want it for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. That we don't have to guess on what biblical success really is. It's not early retirement. It's not a giant portfolio. It's not a pile of kids and grandkids and big house with a picket fence around it. It's not even our influence on the world. It's simply how we measure up and how we have put Christ first in everything that we say and do. Father, I pray that you would not just shake us up, but build us up in Jesus' name. You God's people say.
Fighting for love, for hope and a future All together as one! 